Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. As always, the format will be the same. First we'll have the story, then some information about where the story's from, some folklore from the story, and then the history of the food that's in the story, plus today's recipe. Our story today is Stone Soup. And if you're listening comfortably, gentle listener, I'll begin. In a certain kingdom, a soldier served in the mounted guard of the king. He served twenty-five years faithfully, and for his good conduct the king gave orders to discharge him with honour, and gave him as a reward the same horse on which he had ridden in the regiment, and all his tack. The soldier took farewell of his comrades and set out for his hometown. He travelled a day, a second, and a third. Then a week had gone, a second, and a third week, and the soldier had no money left, no food, and nothing to feed his horse. He'd not taken into account that the winter had been a bad one, as had the one before, and unyielding summer rains had resulted in more poor harvests. He'd been protected from these by his close service with the king, but the food he'd been buying had been four times the price he'd been expecting to pay. First things first. The rains had at least resulted in long grasses by the roadside, and his faithful horse could feast on these, even if he would prefer a nice stable and some hot bran mash. He at least wouldn't starve, but the soldier couldn't eat grass. He took stock of his belongings, and then stripped his horse of his embroidered saddlecloth and ribbons, which he thought might fetch enough money for his new plan. He apologised to his horse, but needs must when the devil farts in your pocket. At the next small town, he approached the nearest peddler and sold his horse's gaudy trimmings for much less than they were worth. But with the money, he bought a serviceable blanket, which he could share with his horse, as the days continued to get colder, and a large pot-bellied metal pot with three sturdy legs, and proceeded on his way. He decided to try and catch a rabbit for his dinner that evening and just managed to snare one, which he roasted on a fire. He didn't dare to hunt any other game as the country's laws were strict and he preferred his neck to remain unbroken and didn't want to become an afternoon's entertainment for the local populace. He took what shelter there was in a small wood and slept better than he had in some time as his long stomach was at least no longer growling. The next day, the soldier continued on his journey and as he moved out of the woodland, he lost any chance of hunting small game but at least the grass was still there for his horse although the fields were bare. The first village he came to was reluctant to help him with a few ingredients, and the men of the village were starting to eye their pitchforks, so he moved on. The next village looked a little more prosperous, and he decided to try his original plan. He approached the village well, and asked the women gathered around it if he might have some water for his pot-bellied cauldron. They agreed, although they were very suspicious. This village is too poor for handouts, so I suggest you move along sharpish if you've any plans to start begging, the woman who looked to be the most prosperous of the group said. Oh no, said the soldier, I've no need for handouts, just this water, which is due to any traveller. What good's just water to you, she said. It's all I need, he said, I have the secret of stone soup. What's stone soup? You'll soon see, he said, you're all welcome to join me when it's ready. He took the small amount of deadfall he'd managed to find in the forest and strapped his saddle and lit this fire on a big flat stone near to the well and positioned his pot full of water. From his saddlebags he took the bag he had made from a small piece of fine material he'd sold for his rug and pot and took out an egg-shaped stone with sparkling quartz running through it. He had found the stone on the day his money had run out and it was the foundation of his plan. He dropped the stone gently into the water and then removed his tack from his horse and started cleaning. It takes a while, he said, and settled down on his blanket. Once the water was steaming he tasted the soup and gave every sign of enjoyment to come. The women had managed to contain their curiosity until this point, but when the small children had started to gather around the soldier and he allowed them to play with his horse, they were becoming a little more welcoming. How is it? Really good. 
It's just a shame we don't have any onions. They make stone soup just about perfect. But what one has to go without, it's no use thinking more about. One woman caught hold of a small child and whispered, and the child went running off. He returned with three big onions and handed them to the soldier, who peeled them, segmenting them roughly with his knife and added them to the pot. The fat-bellied pot started to give out a more appetising smell. The soldier continued to show the children how to tap the horse and how to feed him grass from their hands. He tasted the soup again and smacked his lips in satisfaction. It's so good. But you know what would make it better? Some of those carrots with the green fawn still attached. But what one has to go without is no use thinking more about. Another woman grabbed a nearly identical child and sent him scurrying off. He swiftly returned with a bunch of carrots with slightly drooping but still green fronds. The soldier cut them up roughly and added them to the pot. His tack was as clean as clean could be, so he started to tell stories to the children gathered round him about boggles and ghosties. As everyone knows, that's the sort the children enjoy. The latest story ended with the discovery of a skeleton. The soldier sipped the stone soup again. That reminds me, he said, stone soup is at its best with bones. But I don't imagine anyone has any. So, what one has to go without, it's no use thinking any more about. Another of the women took hold of her child and he left the group, returning at speed with some good marrow bones, not wanting to miss any more of the story. The stories continued, but as the sky slowly darkened to that wonderful shade of early evening blue, the stories changed to those of adventurous boys and clever girls, and the women around the well dropped any pretense of not listening, and drew closer to the fire as the air became cooler. The soldier tasted the soup and gave a sigh of satisfaction. Who didn't look perfectly happy? What is it? One of the women asked. It's so good, he said, but it's missing that extra flavour you get from those shiny blue-green lentils. At the back of the crowd, a woman disappeared and returned nearly as quickly as the children had, with a small bag of the lentils, which the soldier added to the stone soup. He continued with his story of a clever peasant girl who had married a king and outwitted him the first of several times. The women were full of questions, but quieted as he tasted the soup again. Nearly perfect, he said, but it'd be better with some just-dug potatoes, the ones that absorb all the flavour of the soup and then give it back as you bite into their softness. But still, what one has to go without is no use thinking any more about. Another woman disappeared from the back of the group and returned with a basket of clean potatoes. The soldier added them to the soup and continued with the story as the clever peasant girl outwitted the king again. There were gasps at the peasant girl's audacity, and as they did that, the smell of the soup reached them. A combination of all the wonderful ingredients from the magic of the stories made them desperate to taste. One woman asked the soldier if the stone soup would be better with some extra pot herbs that she had in her kitchen. It's my secret combination, she said. I bet the stone soup won't have those extra flavours. The soldier agreed and a slightly sleepy child was sent in pursuit of the tied herbs and a little salt. The soldier added them to the pot. It was full dark by now, and the men of the village were returning from their work, drawn by the smell of the soup and the laughter of the women and the children as the soldier ended his story of the clever peasant girl and the king, and how she outwitted him by overwhelming him with the best foods and drinks, and kidnapping from his own castle and returning with him to her father's farm. What's all this? asked the village headman. This... It's a generous soldier who's going to share his magical stone soup with all of us, said the woman who'd originally spoken to the soldier. Headman knew that when his wife used that voice, he should probably save the argument for later. We should share something of ours too, husband, she said, and send him back to her kitchen for bread, as she was the miller's wife. The alewife agreed and sent her husband for ale. The dairy farmer smelled the soup and agreed to go back for his wife's cheeses, and the butcher's wife returned with some smoked sausages. Tables were dragged out of the houses and the feast was laid around the dish of honour, the steaming, delicious-smelling stone soup. The fire, which had nearly died out, was built up with wood from all the closest houses, warming every part that the soup didn't reach. 
once everyone was full and happy for possibly the first time that year. The soldier placed himself by the fire with his ale and started his next tale. When the fire finally downed down for the final time, he was given the best bed in the village to sleep on, and his horse finally got that bran mash and a night in the miller's stable. He left the next morning with a package of feast leftovers in his fat bellied pot and his freshly washed stone. And that, gentle listener, is the end of my tale, and I hope it pleased you, for it had no other purpose. So, what did you think? It's an old story, and you may well have heard it before, but I thought in the current environment it might strike a chord. If it doesn't, it's still a really good story, even if the moral does smack you round the face rather than gently whisper in your ear. I've added the storytelling. It's how I imagine the traveller, who's good with words, might behave. It's very rare that a storyteller isn't welcome, and it certainly wouldn't be the first storyteller who paid for dinner with his tales. The whole idea of everyone contributing, resulting in something joyful, rather than everyone hoarding what they have and no one having enough to be happy, is something that resounds strongly with me at the moment. So, where's this tale from? No one knows exactly. It doesn't appear in any of the formal collections that appeared during the 19th century. It is, however, graded all on its own as ATU1548, The Stone Soup. So it's obviously become a folk tale, even if it didn't become from the oral tradition, which we don't know that it didn't. There are various versions across Europe, sometimes the stone is a nail. The variations seem to be whether it's a clever man persuading a village or persuading a miserly woman instead. Sometimes a man's a tramp, sometimes a soldier, sometimes a priest, sometimes a pilgrim. The earliest original version seems to come from the writer Mademoiselle Noyer in 1720. We don't know, however, whether she told the story, whether she read it in a book, or whether she made it up herself. All versions after this do seem very polished, but it seems odd if it was a popular oral tale that it wouldn't appear in any of the big collections. Did you know that the Dagda of the Tuatha de Danon was once forced by his enemies, the Framor, to eat a huge trough full of soup soaked stew? They took his cauldron and fought a great battle and filled it with 400 gallons of milk, meal and fat, along with goats, sheep and pigs, and boiled them. He had to comply to obligations for hospitality, but surprisingly managed to triumph. Boiling things also seem to be popular with ogres too. They're always wanting to boil human bones for dinner. Sounds like broth to me, even if it's a very unappealing one. Soup is so ubiquitous, it feels like it should have its own folklore. And perhaps it does in the amount of proverbs and quotes about soup, either literal or metaphorical. Have you ever been in the soup? Drowning in alphabet soup? Or even in a pea souper? Or maybe you can agree with the following. A soup like this is not the work of one man. It's a result of a constantly refined tradition. There are nearly a thousand years of history in this soup. That's from Willa Cather. Soup is the song of the hearth and the home. Lewis P. de Goy. And soup puts the heart at ease, calms down the violence of hunger, eliminates the tension of the day, and awakens and refines the appetite. That's Augustus Gauthier. Even if you don't feel that Proverbs are folklore, there's definitely some folk more in the etymological origin of the word. Here are the three alternatives. First one. It goes back to an unrecorded post-classical verb, supare, to soak, which was borrowed from the same prehistoric German root, sup, as produced in English sup and supper. From it was derived the noun super, which passed into Old French as soup. This meant both piece of bread was soaked in liquid and, by extension, broth poured onto bread. It was the latter strand of the meaning that entered English in the 17th century. Until the arrival of the term soup, such food had been termed broth or pottage. It was customarily served with the meat or vegetable dishes with which it had been made and, as the derivation of soup suggests, was poured over sops of bread or toast. The ancestors of modern croutons. That's from the A to Z of Food and Drink by John Ato. 
Our second suggestion is our modern word, soup, derives from the old French word soap and soup. The French word was used in England in the form of sop at the end of the Middle Ages, unfortunately has remained in the English language in its original form and with its much of its original sense. We say fortunately because it's clear that nowadays a sop is not a soup. The distinction is important. When cooks in the Middle Ages spoke of soup, what they and the people for whom they were cooking really understood was a dish compromising primarily of a piece of bread or toast soaked in a liquid or over which liquid had been poured. The bread or toast was an important, even vital part of this dish. It was the means by which a diner could consume the liquid efficiently by sopping it up. That's from Early French Cookery by Delano Scully and Terence Scully. Soup. The most general of the terms which apply to liquid savoury dishes. Similar terms in other languages include the Italian zuppa, the German super, Danish zuppa. Of the various categories of the dish which may be eaten, soup can certainly be counted amongst the most basic. Its role as an appetising first cause should be viewed against the historical background in which soups with solids and then were a meal themselves for poorer people, especially in rural areas. That's from the Oxford Companion to Food by Alan Davidson. You can choose yourself, really. I looked up the Oxford English Dictionary definition and I'll skip to the short version and say they're not sure. Sort of a mixture of my three previous quotes, to be honest. So, that's it for folklore of soup. Generally outside the folklore of specific soups. I simply don't have the room here to examine them individually. If you think that even Vichyssoise has three different origin stories. But maybe they'll come up in future blogs. If you know of any, apart from Herodotus quoting a contemporary Greek, um, that the Spartan black soup was so vile that it's unsurprising they would rush towards death as it meant they wouldn't have to drink any more soup. I'm paraphrasing, but it does provide a different perspective. So we'll move away from folklore and towards history and look at where soup came from. It's very ancient. The history of soup is probably as old as the history of cooking. Anthropologists disagree on the date. It's either 80,000 BCE by the Neanderthal Cro-Magnons. That's not both of them together, one or the other probably, or Neolithic man later, around 10,000 BCE. What we do know is that as cooking in water was usually a much better, more nutritious and fuel efficient way of cooking, that we started it long before we invented pots. I find that fascinating. How did we do it then? Two different ways apparently. The first was by using animal skins or intestines and being careful not to burn them from underneath on the fire. The second way was by using animal skins or digging out troughs, hollowing out cauldrons of stone, and then adding in hot stones to keep the water boiling or simmering. It's stone soup, isn't it? Well, sort of, anyway. Herodotus comments on the Scythians cooking meat in an animal's stomach by burning the bones underneath it. There's still evidence of hot stone cooking in Ireland and Scotland well into the 17th century. Anyway, to speed things up, first we got ceramic pots, then we invented metal work and got metal pots so everyone could easily make soup over a fire. There is evidence that cooking liquid-based meals over fire with a cereal pulse or rice and vegetables happened across the world in all cultures. Although we've been eating what we now call soup for a long time, we've only really been calling it that since the 17th century. Previous to that, it was considered pottage or porridge and was probably thicker or a broth. We also used to cook meat and liquid and then have the resulting broth separately, as well as using stock to cook vegetables, a grain and some meat. So that brings us to two more important questions. How do you know the difference between soup and stew? And what's the difference between broth and stock? The simplest answer to the first would be which course are you eating it for? If it's a main course, it's much more likely to be stew. If it's a starter, then I'd go with soup. The simplest answer to the second is probably could you have it on its own as it is? If the answer is yes, then it's broth. If not, it's stock. A general principle is that stock is a base for other ingredients. We've also just realised that we have not yet defined soup. According to the OED, it's a liquid food prepared by boiling, usually consists of an extract of meat with other ingredients and seasoning, frequently with defining words as fish, giblet, gravy, hare, oxtail, pea, turtle soup, clear, thick soup, etc. The first reference is in 1653. 
As I mentioned, when we consider the etymology of the word, we are more concerned with the sop of bread, and soup didn't become a more generally accepted term until the 17th century, when French influences in food became stronger on Charles II's return to the throne. Through the medieval period and the Renaissance, they were just as likely to record a pottage or broth. The earliest English cookery book, The Form of Curry, has several recipes, including one for eel broth and rabbits in clear broth. Robert May's accomplished cook in 1685 is still full of pottage and broth recipes, which are familiar to us as soup recipes. However, the English and French cook published 11 years previously references soups, not just pottages. However, Chavez Markham in The English Housewife is still using the terminology of broths and pottages in 1631. Soup changed from the 17th century, taking on more specific types of soup for the wealthier families with more labour-intensifying vegetable purees and cream soups and refined consommes, whereas for the labouring families, the more traditional soup continued to reign supreme. Soup was also much used as a charitable service to the poor and sick from the middle and upper classes. There was even guidance on how to make soup for the poor. Take my advice and don't look. It'll make every socialist heckle you've ever had in your body rise and demand justice. It also sounds horrible, mostly. There were also many soup recipes for ailments, which do sound more appealing. However, they were a bit literal in their interpretation of food as medicine. I'd like to point out that it isn't. Medicine, I mean. I'm the first person to say that a nutritionally rich, varied, balanced diet is important for both physical and mental health, if you're privileged enough to be able to achieve that. But it's still not medicine. Medicine is medicine. Otherwise, why would we bother making it and working out all those pesky doses, etc.? Anyway, I'm climbing down from my high horse to say that some of the other changes were technological too. They worked out how to dry, dehydrate and can soup, making an important item for armies, explorers and travellers alike. It's also useful for those of us who, in the days of offices, kept a cup of soup in their locker in case of emergencies. Dried soup and canned soup were also sold as an excellent alternative to home cooking for busy mothers. So, that's a canned, haha, history of soup. I imagine you either really fancy soup now, or you never, ever want soup again. I love soup, most kinds really. Heinz tomato with cheese toasties is what I have when I'm under the weather and feel sorry for myself. However, I really love homemade lentil and pancetta, as well as roasted pumpkin with truffle oil and mushroom, lemon and garlic. I love onion soup with melting cheese crepes in the winter, and gazpacho and Lithuanian pink soup. Ask me on social media and I'll explain on a hot summer day. The only one I'm really not keen on is carrot. I'm not even sure why. The best soups I've ever had have usually been on holiday or in restaurants or other cuisines. This is true of today's recipe, which I tried for the first time in a traditional family-style restaurant beside Street in Helsinki on a cold April night. It was amazing, and it wasn't even the best thing we had there. We didn't want to leave, but had to meet a friend from a circus and an underground craft beer bar, which is another story completely. This is a salmon, potato and dill soup. It's so simple and so good. I'd recommend everyone try it. Finnish food is severely underrated and should be championed. The only reason I haven't given it its proper name here is that I can't pronounce it. I'm really sorry. But the name is on the show notes. And I think that's it for today's episode. If you do get any cat meows in this, I'm really sorry. I would have tried to edit them out. But he's decided he wanted to be involved. Perhaps he even fancies some soup. If you really enjoy the podcast, it would help me out a great deal if you would recommend it. Wherever you get your podcasts, you could give it five stars or however many stars you think are appropriate it really helps other people find the podcast thank you so much for listening and i hope you come back for the next episode of folklore food and fairy tales